Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello, Sixpackers, and welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, Episode 34. Back in the late 60s, the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said this, Who is going to save our church? Not our bishops, not our priests and religious. It's up to you, the people. You have the minds, the eyes, and the ears to save the church. Your mission is to see to it that your priests act like priests, your bishops act like bishops, and your religious act like religious. Now, I think our bishops are beginning to realize this to their eternal shame. On August 9th, the USCCB published the results of a Pew Research survey that found that only 30% of Catholics believe in the real presence, a massive decline from 70% just a decade ago. When the USCCB published this survey on its Facebook page, they did something they've never done in the history of the Catholic Church in America. I'll tell you what that is when we come back. Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, is a welcome visitor to parishes across the United States every Sunday through his What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Using humor, immutable truth, and ignoring political correctness, Joe Sixpack helps the average Catholic in the pew better know and understand our holy and ancient faith in a way that is refreshing, awe-inspiring, and makes readers chest-pounding proud to be Catholic. And readers love it. Now you can enjoy Joe's work by getting the best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It book series. In fact, get two copies of each book, one for yourself and one for your pastor. Then your priest can decide if he wants to help your fellow parishioners by subscribing to the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Get your copy of the best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It by Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, today in print or ebook on Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Noble, and Kobo. As I said, the Pew survey found that only 30% of Catholics today believe in the real presence. When the USCCB published the results of the survey, they did something they've never done in the history of the Catholic Church in America. They actually asked for the laity's advice. If the bishops were expecting to get suggestions for new programs or media campaigns, they were sorely disappointed. If they expected to get all sorts of namby-pamby feel-good responses that don't amount to hill of beans, their expectations weren't met. I know because I went to the page and read the answers. My heart leapt for joy at what these lady people had to say. Let me share some of the posts from the laity with you. One lady wrote the USCCB should reevaluate norms for reception of the Blessed Sacrament, returning to reception on the tongue, and doing away with Eucharistic ministers. Another lady wrote, cut down on the use of extraordinary ministers and forbid them from giving blessings. Bring back the altar rail, tabernacle front and center, and catechize. (laughs) She put that all in caps. She wanted to get that across to the bishops, I guess. 
One man, who's obviously been thinking about this for a while, wrote, Abolish the practice of communion in the hand. Restore sacred music. Ask churches to move the tabernacle to the center. Put together a resource on ad orientum posture and show that it is a valid posture. Make sure that everyone is kneeling during the consecration and after the Agnus Dei. Encourage more frequent confession. Publish a source on proper attire for the most holy sacrifice of the Mass. Actually listen to the people craving authentic Catholicism and realize that many experiments of the past decades have caused my generation to largely be absent from the pews. Responding to the survey and the bishop's request, I especially like the courage of one lady. She said, We know this. We have been crying out to you for this. You are the reason. Simply put, our shepherds are hired hands. You could change this in a year if you but did what you're consecrated to do. Although the USCCB asked for advice from the laity, more than a few priests weighed in. I especially like the comment made by one Father Matthew Mary Bartow. He wrote, I think we all know the cause of this problem, or at least what has contributed to it. Years of poor catechesis in schools, homilies that neglect to teach the true doctrine on the real presence, lack of substantial teaching on the reality of sin and grace, liturgies that lack true reverence toward the Blessed Sacrament, not encouraging a reverent reception of Holy Communion, and that the ordinary means of reception is kneeling and on the tongue, modern music that emphasizes feeling good over divine worship and praise, lack of Latin, which was affirmed by Vatican II as the language of the church, a de-emphasis on confession, a lack on teaching on the reality of mortal sin and how it separates us from God and from sanctifying grace, lack of teaching that receiving communion in anything less than a state of grace is a sacrilege, and the failure of clergy to set an example of a holy life for their flocks. Let's begin by no longer tolerating any abuses in the liturgy by upholding the perennial teaching of the Catholic Church, the deposit of faith as it comes from our Lord and the Apostles, and by living a life in accord with such teaching. Wow! This priest hit the nail squarely on the head. He touched on everything, deficient catechesis, milk-toast homilies, bad liturgies, the de-emphasis of confession, no teaching on mortal sin and sanctifying grace, and a morally lax priesthood. Unfortunately, I seriously doubt the USCCB will listen. A few individual bishops may, but the national body won't. The only American bishop with the guts to do what had to be done died last November. Bishop Robert Morlino of Madison, Wisconsin had begun making changes about a year before he died. He informed his people that altar rails would be reinstalled where possible and that communion would be received while kneeling and only on the tongue, effective the first Sunday of Advent 2018. Unfortunately, he never got to see that happen because he died the week before Advent began. While the results of the survey are sad, I'm actually excited about it. What I believe is happening is that the Holy Spirit is purging the priesthood with the sex scandals, and I think he's purging the laity as we all fall like flies because the bishops haven't done their jobs in decades. You six-packers are special. You're not run-of-the-mill Catholics, so you know beyond a doubt that we six-packers have an obligation to share the truth with our fellow Catholics, especially the Eucharist. 
After all, belief in the Eucharist is the very heart and soul of our holy and ancient faith. But there are three challenges we face in doing this. The first challenge is that the Catholic laity already believe they know everything they need to know about the Catholic faith. I know because I run into this problem all the time. But the fact is that they don't know because they haven't been taught. At least three generations of cradle Catholics haven't been taught, but they think they have. They attend Catholic schools or classes of instruction all during childhood. Those classes were led by approved teachers. The teachers used approved texts and programs. It's understandable, then, why the laity think they've been taught. But those texts and programs were all watered-down milk-toast catechesis with namby-pamby platitudes about how we can all just feel good. So we have to overcome their catechetical illiteracy with the fullness of a divinely revealed truth. More on that in a moment. Because of the first challenge, we have the second challenge, and that's getting them to listen to the truth. Frankly, I don't have a remedy for that, at least no human remedy. We can't force folks to listen. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit to dispose them to listen, and that requires daily intense prayer. But they can't be reached at all if we don't put in the effort. It's easy to have the tendency to tell ourselves that we can't help it if they made the choice not to believe, and that at least we can rest in the knowledge that we're okay because we do believe. That's a lie you're telling yourself that originates in the pits of hell. You're not okay just because you believe if you're not willing to share that with others. Selfishly keeping orthodox knowledge to yourself builds a clear path to hell. Don't forget that these people haven't actually been taught, and that's why they don't believe. Jesus gave us the Great Commission, after all, and Paul told us that we have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Okay, we've covered the first two challenges, but what about the third one? What is it? The third challenge rests within ourselves. We have to know what to share with others. At some point in our lives, we were told the reasons why we believe a thing, such as the Eucharist, but few of us know how to hand that on to others. We became convinced because of what we were taught, but it's quite another thing to try to explain it to others. After learning and becoming convinced, what we learn somehow becomes transmuted in our minds into a lot of subjective feelings about what we believe. That's a good thing for your own personal devotion, but no one was ever convinced of a truth because of a subjective emotion, so it doesn't work when telling others why they should believe. The remedy, then, is to make the effort to learn the subjective realities well enough to pass them on to our brothers and sisters. I'm going to do that regarding the Eucharist in a moment, but I want to digress briefly to talk to you about learning what you six-packers need to know. You've heard me harp on attending the free webinars I host each week, but most of you don't do it because you either don't want to make the effort, in which case I'd advise you to examine your conscience, or you think that what I teach will be too deep, too hard. Well, let me put your mind at rest about that. With the exception of a brief mention of the heresies of fundamental option and situation ethics, everything I teach is what any Catholic schoolchild 70 years ago knew by the time he or she finished the 8th grade. Everything I teach, the church expected children to know by the time they were 12 or 13 a mere 70 years ago. You're six-packers, so I know you're able to learn what 13-year-olds could learn 70 years ago. Summer break's over. We recommence our webinars this weekend on the 26th. 
It's already been scheduled. For your convenience, I've placed a link in my show notes for you to be able to register. If you can't attend the live event where you can ask questions in real time, register anyway. Registrants who missed the webinar sent a link to a recording of the event the next day. Remember, though, you have to register in order to get the link. Now on to the Eucharist. It's been my experience that even among Catholics who can explain the reality of the Eucharist, they can't explain the Mass, its origins, or what's really taking place. Unless you can do that, just explaining the reality of the Eucharist is like telling a traveler in New York to take I-70 to California. That only takes people part of the way, because I-70 goes from Baltimore to Cofort, Utah. If you want to have an impact in someone's life regarding the Eucharist, you have to be able to explain the Mass, too. After all, without the Mass, there can't be a Eucharist. So that's what I'm going to explain now. Ready? Here we go. Most people know that Jesus didn't change the Old Covenant, but rather that he fulfilled it. But they're foggy about how he did that, because to the minds of most people, the Catholicism of the New Covenant has no resemblance to the Judaism of the Old Covenant. Pius XII was so right to call us Catholics New Covenant Jews, and you'll quickly see how the Mass and the Eucharist fulfill the Old Covenant. Even before God created the world, he knew he'd create man. Because he's infinite love, God's creation of man was an extension of that love. But after the fall, man became evil. Indeed, once our first parents yielded to temptation, the journey from innocent liberty to evil license accelerated at an alarming rate. God didn't leave us orphaned, though. When man fell, he promised us a redeemer to redeem us from sin. That was the first covenant. In the meantime, the world became rife with evil, with man giving himself over to every sort of degradation and perversion he could conceive. In fact, man had so declined into the depths of abasement that everyone had forsaken and forgotten God. That is, all but one man who still found favor with him. That man was Noah. God told Noah he'd destroy mankind and everything inhabiting the world, but he promised Noah that he, his family, and every species of animal would be saved. So Noah built an ark according to God's instructions and loaded two of every species of animal on the ark. Then, according to God's promise, the floods came and all of mankind was destroyed. When the flood waters receded and Noah and his family were able to again walk on dry ground, Noah built an altar to God and made sacrifices to him. God was pleased with these sacrifices and promised Noah that he'd never again destroy mankind with a flood, and that was the second covenant. As a sign of this covenant, God established the rainbow in the clouds. So man repopulated the earth, and so it was until the patriarchy of Abraham. Abraham was a friend of God, a just and upright man. He served God well, and God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of a great nation, with his descendants more numerous than the stars. So the nation of Israel was born of Abraham, and it grew. The children of Israel had settled among the Egyptians. They'd grown so large in numbers that the Egyptians feared they'd become a threat. So they enslaved the Israelites, working them to build great structures and treating them cruelly, until God sent Moses to set his people free. He led them from bondage so they could settle in the promised land to become a great nation and worship God as he commanded. 
After Moses led the children of Israel from bondage, God led them up to Mount Sinai in Egypt. Then God said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses went to God as he'd been instructed, and it was there that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. But along with the moral code that we all have to live by, he also commanded Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, a lampstand, their place of worship with its surroundings, and even exactly how he wanted the inside of the place of worship to be set up. Then God told Moses to establish the Levitical priesthood. These men were to be set apart for God, so he told Moses how he wanted them to be consecrated or ordained to him. Once God had set apart the Levitical priesthood to worship and make sacrifice to him on behalf of the people, God instructed Moses exactly how the priests were to be dressed and make themselves worthy to stand in his presence at the Ark of the Covenant. It was then that God told them exactly how he wanted to be worshipped in word and deed. He demanded offerings of bread and grain, of wine and of flesh to be made daily as worship to God. God demanded absolute obedience to these sacrifices and everything connected with them for his worship. He said, And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you this day, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So God was and is serious about how he's to be worshipped, and there are grave consequences for disobedience. Now we jump forward in time to the Last Supper. It was at the Last Supper that Jesus established the new covenant with the holy sacrifice of the Mass. But how did that affect the old covenant and how God was to be worshipped? Jesus said, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But how did he do that? First, Jesus did something very profound. He said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then, after his resurrection from the dead, he told the apostles, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Thus he passed on to them his own mission. And repeatedly he told the apostles, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So Christ has given his divine authority to Peter and all his successors. Since Jesus gave us the new ultimate sacrifice for divine worship at the first mass when he said, do this in memory of me, and since he gave his divine authority to Peter and his successors, the church speaks in Christ's name and determines how the holy sacrifice in the mass is to be done. Just as God told Moses how he wanted his priest to dress, so too does the church tell the new covenant priests how to dress. The Levitical priests had to dress worthily to stand in God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant. Likewise, Catholic priests have to dress worthily to represent Jesus' sacrifice to the Father while before the tabernacle. And under the New Covenant, the sacrifices of bread, wine, and flesh were replaced with the Holy Eucharist, which is at one and the same time perfected bread, wine, and flesh, because it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. 
Because the Eucharist is in fact Jesus, when we go to Mass, we worship him there truly present. But is the Eucharist really the living flesh and blood of Jesus Christ as the Church claims? Can it be proven? Every Catholic knows Jesus instituted the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday night at the Last Supper, which was the night before he was crucified. The Last Supper was the very first Mass. At the first Mass during the Last Supper, he took bread in his sacred hands and gave the Father thanks and praise, broke the bread, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup of wine, gave thanks, and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that's the basis for the Catholic Church's teaching about the real presence, that Jesus is really and truly present on our altars at Mass. But can it be proven? We'll begin by looking at the Last Supper narrative in Luke 22:15. Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now look, Jesus knew he'd be on the cross dying in a matter of hours. We have to ask ourselves, would a man on death row be anxious to have his last meal? Certainly not. But this is what Jesus, who knew he was essentially on death row, appears to be saying. So the next logical question is why? To learn the answer to that question, we have to look at John 6. Before we get to the pertinent passage, let's first set the stage with three miracles performed by Jesus. As John 6 opens, we see Jesus feeding 5,000 people from a few loaves and fishes. This is miracle number one. After this, Jesus went into the hills to pray while he sent his disciples across the sea in their boat. But that night, the sea became stormy and the apostles were afraid they'd perish. Then they saw Jesus walking on the water to them. This is miracle number two. Once he got into the boat, they suddenly found themselves at the shore on the other side of the sea. This is miracle number three. While this was taking place, the people from the day before spent the night going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to catch up with the apostles. They knew he didn't get into the boat with the apostles the night before, but they did know wherever the apostles were, Jesus would eventually turn up. They were amazed to find Jesus waiting for them on the other side of the sea. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? But Jesus cut right to the chase. He said, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Indignantly they reply, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Incredible! After all they'd seen Jesus do, they still wanted yet more signs. As incredible as it was, though, this is exactly what Jesus was waiting for. So he responded, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people then said, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus responded, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 
I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he had said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus doubled down. He said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that any man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's when Jesus became very forceful. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Many of his disciples said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus' followers rightly believed he was speaking literally, and after this many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. If they misunderstood, Jesus was under a moral obligation to explain things more clearly. But he didn't do that. He let them walk away forever. Then Jesus asked his apostles, Will you also go away? Speaking for the others, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter was saying they didn't understand how Jesus would give them his flesh, but they believed he would do as he said. Now you know why Jesus earnestly desired his final meal. He said, this is my body, not this symbolizes my body or this represents my body. He said, this is my body. So we now understand that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I've gone over the origins of the Mass to show you how Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant, and I've shown you the reality of the real presence from Scripture. There's one more bit of evidence for the reality of the real presence, but whether it's accepted as proof will depend on the disposition of the person you're talking to. This proof I'm talking about are the Eucharistic miracles that have taken place over the centuries. There are many such miracles I could talk about that have no scientific explanation whatsoever, but I'm just going to limit it here to one. I'm going to briefly talk about the most famous of the Eucharistic miracles, the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano. Around the year 700 in the monastery of Longinus, a priest monk of the Order of St. Basil was celebrating Mass. Having suffered recurring doubts about transubstantiation, he had just spoken the solemn words of the consecration when the host was suddenly changed into a circle of flesh, and the wine was transformed into blood. Weeping joyously, he hastened to call the other monks to witness the stupendous miracle. The miracle remains to this day. Over the subsequent 13 centuries, that which remained bred in the host decayed away, but the flesh remained, despite that it should have turned to dust centuries ago. 
Likewise, the blood coagulated into five separate globules which remain today, despite that they too should have turned to dust centuries ago. In 1970, then again in 1981, and most recently in 2005, there was a scientific investigation of the Eucharistic miracle of Lanciano. These investigations were conducted by some of the most eminent scientists in the world. The scientific investigation found the following facts. The flesh is real flesh, the blood is real blood. The flesh and the blood belong to the human species. The flesh consists of the muscular tissue of the heart. The flesh is an entire heart, complete in its essential structure. The flesh and blood have the same blood type, AB, which is the same that was discovered in the Holy Shroud of Turin. The preservation of the flesh and of the blood, which were left in their natural state for 12 centuries and exposed to the action of atmospheric and biological agents, remains an extraordinary phenomenon. In 1999, further DNA testing determined the same DNA exists here as in other Eucharistic miracles and the Shroud of Turin. When each globule of blood was weighed, each of the five were found to be the same identical weight. Weighed altogether, the five globules only weighed as much as one globule. Again, I've gone over the origins of the Mass to show you how Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant, and I've shown you the reality of the real presence from sacred scripture, and I've closed this by briefly explaining one of the many Eucharistic miracles. Now you're equipped to share Eucharistic truths with other Catholics. You know, the 70% of them who no longer believe in the real presence. You can always listen to this over and over again to help get it engraved on your brain because this episode's never going to be unavailable. Have you liked this? Well, then sign up for the first of my webinar series, which will begin on August 25th. I'll be proving the existence of God. Sign up through the link in my show notes. Hey, I want to talk to you a moment about some really hard realities Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, is facing. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you for money, but I am asking for your help. Everything I do for Catholic lay people is free. I offer free answers to your Catholic questions on joesixpackanswers.com, a free email course, free webinars, and the Cantankerous Catholic Podcast is free. I do this for you because I see each six-packer as my family, and taking care of one another is what family does. My concern, of course, is for your soul to help you become a better Catholic and attain heaven. Until recently, I'd always been able to generate enough revenue to cover my monthly expenses, but costs on almost everything have gone up. You'll notice about three months ago, I began putting display ads for Catholic merchandise in the sidebar of the Cantankerous Catholic website on several pages. Those are Amazon ads, and I get a small commission when you click on those ads to shop at Amazon. Amazon is threatening to shut me down because they're not getting enough business through my ads. If I lose the ability to advertise for Amazon, I lose money to help pay for my ever-increasing costs, and that'll eventually cause me to give up Joe Sixpack the Every Catholic Guy. I try to change the ads every few weeks. Since Amazon is the world's largest retailer, I'm fairly certain you shop there. You may not be at all interested in the things I show you in those ads, but if you click one of the ads and buy anything else on Amazon, I still get a small commission on your purchases. 
So I'm asking you to do me a favor by clicking on one of those ads in the sidebar of the Cantankerous Catholic website the next time you need to shop on Amazon, rather than going directly to the Amazon site. Oh, and most of the books I recommend for each episode are also linked to Amazon, so I get a commission on them too. I don't recommend those books just for the commission. I really think you should read those books because I've either read them or know the author personally or by reputation. Please help me keep Joe Sixpack the Every Catholic Guide functioning by going to Amazon through the ads on my website. Thank you. Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Breitbart. The American flag has become a symbol of resistance against China in the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, prominently waved throughout the city this past weekend, as police fired tear gas and rubber bullets into the peaceful crowds. You can read this whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to LifeSite News. Politicians have a constitutional right to be stupid, but Pete Buttigieg is taking advantage of that right. He's wrong about religion, abortion, and homosexuality. We don't want someone with three major failures in the White House. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to the Western Journal. I couldn't pass this up because it's hilarious and true. You'll have to see it for yourself. A gun shop in a small North Carolina town is taking some heat from the left after putting up a particularly funny billboard. The sign features the four progressive freshman lawmakers known as the Squad, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whom I call the bartender, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick pick Number number 2 Hats off to LifeSite News. Ordinarily, I don't recommend anything here besides news stories. After all, this is news notes. However, I found this blog post so relevant to six-packers that I had to mention it here. It's called, Even Married Christians Are Called to Embrace Poverty, Chastity, and Obedience. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 1 Hats off to LifeSite News. The season finale of a Disney Channel teen show made history by featuring the network's first teenage homosexual couple. Keep your kids away from this garbage. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. One day a messenger came breathlessly to King St. Louis' court and told the king, Your Majesty, hurry to the chapel. A great miracle is going on there. What kind of miracle, the king asked. A great miracle. A priest is saying Holy Mass, and after the consecration instead of the host, there was visible on the altar Jesus Christ himself. Hurry before it disappears. The king remained quiet, which surprised the messenger. Well, aren't you coming, Majesty? asked the messenger. No, replied the king. Let them go to see the miracle who have any doubt regarding the real presence of our Lord in the Holy Sacrament. 
As for me, even if I saw Jesus on the altar in his visible form and touched him with my hand and heard his voice, I'd not be more convinced than I am now that he is present in the consecrated host. My faith is sufficient for me. I need no miracle. The faith of St. Louis was so strong that he didn't need any visions of Jesus to prove that the color, weight, and shape were only the appearances of the bread and wine, but that Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, was really contained, offered, and received under those appearances. He believed this because Jesus said so, and Jesus is God himself. Hey, six-packers, that's all for this episode. I've enjoyed having you with me. Don't forget to like me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. The links are in my show notes. Also, remember to visit joesixpackanswers.com to sign up for my free email course. Each short lesson arrives in your inbox every three days. We also have the Cantankerous Catholic Social Media Group you can join to discuss anything about Catholicism, our country, or anything else on your mind. I visit the page every day. The link's also in my show notes. There are lots of other neat things of interest in my show notes, too. You can find them at cantankerouscatholic.com. And remember to live by the Joe Sixpack battle cry. Comfort and conviction don't live on the same block. This has been the Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.